From DLA Piper, this is the Beyond the Curve podcast. In this episode, DLA Piper's Paul Hemmersbaugh, Austin Brown, and Peter Carangia discuss the Supreme Court's decision in the closely watched student loan forgiveness case, Biden versus Nebraska. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Beyond the Curve podcast. My name is Peter Carangio. I chair DLA Piper's Administrative Law Appellate Practice, and as the name suggests, my practice focuses on government-facing and appellate litigation. I'm joined here today by my colleagues Paul Hemmersbaugh and Austin Brown. I'll let them introduce themselves, but just very briefly. Paul is a member as well of the firm's appellate practice. He works extensively with administrative agencies and related litigation. Austin works in the consumer protection space, mainly focusing on financial services. And Paul and Austin, feel free to add some more by way of background. Thanks, Peter. It's Paul Hammersbaugh. I am the chair of the transportation regulatory practice here at DLA Piper and have experience in all three branches of the federal government. Thanks, Paul. And thanks, Peter. I do consumer financial services work and I'm here probably most importantly to talk about the impact of this opinion on consumer protection generally, particularly in connection with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, but we can get into that in detail later. So turn it back to you, Peter. Thank you both. So today, of course, we're here to discuss Biden v. Nebraska. That's the Supreme Court's recent 6-3 decision overturning the president's student loan forgiveness program. This was a signature policy initiative of the Biden administration, one that affects an estimated 43 million student loan borrowers. Now, we could devote a whole podcast to the merits of the program as a policy matter and also what the president recently announced in the wake of this decision as a plan B in terms of where to take loan forgiveness. But for present purposes and given the audience we have, our plan is to focus more on the broader implications of the case, what it may tell us about the legal authority of federal agencies and litigation involving agency action. And in particular, we will discuss the major questions doctrine, which many of you may have heard about that was invoked in this case, as well as some recent cases. And we'll try to tease a bit out from this opinion in terms of what that means and what implications it may have for future cases. So just to kick us off, Paul, if you could maybe tell us a bit about the case and what the 6-3 majority held. Sure. Thanks, Peter. I'd first start off with the basic statute, which is the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act, or the HEROES Act. And that act originally enacted in response to the first Iraq war in the first President Bush's term, authorizes the Secretary of Education to waive or modify terms and provisions of federal student aid loan programs in the event of a national emergency. And the secretary is authorized to do that when it is necessary to ensure that recipients of federal student aid are not placed in a financially worse situation with respect to that aid due to the national emergency. In this case, President Trump's Secretary of Education authorized a suspension in student loan payments in response to the COVID-19 national emergency. That suspension both suspended the obligation to pay 
and the accrual of interest at that time. Subsequently, the Biden administration's Secretary of Education took a broader action by providing for student loan forgiveness of federal student loans of up to $10,000 for every student who presently has an income of $125,000 or less for an individual or $250,000 for a married couple. Similarly, it extended an additional $10,000 for Pell Grant recipients. Pell Grants are loans that are provided to lower income borrowers, primarily undergraduates. So in the court majority opinion, they estimate that this would affect 43 million borrowers and that the cost would be approximately $430 billion with a B dollars. So a tremendous federal expenditure to forgive those loans. Six states challenged this law as inappropriate and unlawful. They first challenged in the district court in Eastern District of Missouri. They lost in that court because the district court held that they lacked standing to bring the suit. The states appealed to the Eighth Circuit, which reversed and found standing, issued a nationwide preliminary injunction against implementation of the plan, finding that a financial corporation set up by the state of Missouri to service federal student loans effectively had standing to challenge loan forgiveness and that the state of Missouri could assert that standing on behalf of or through that separate public corporation. That public corporation has a long name, but we will call it MOHILA for purposes of this discussion. That's the acronym. Subsequently, the court granted certiorari and heard the case on an expedited basis. Much of the discussion in the oral argument in the case in February centered on what's known as the major questions doctrine. And predictions at that time by a lot of court watchers were that there was a majority of the court that would strike down the secretary's action, the forgiveness program, on the ground that it transgressed the boundaries established by the major questions doctrine. The Opinion came out on June 30th, and the majority opinion, 6-3, to three, written by Chief Justice Roberts, found first that the state of Missouri had standing because Mohila, a public corporation, was a public instrumentality that was created by Missouri, and essentially because it was created by Missouri, it was effectively an agent of the state of Missouri, and thus Missouri had standing to bring the case even though Mohila itself had declined to challenge the statute. Missouri was allowed to assert Mohila's injury and standing as an injury to the state of Missouri. So finding that the case was properly before a federal court, the court proceeded to the merits and reviewed the language of the statute. And in reading the statute's terms, which authorized the secretary to waive or modify, those are the express terms, to waive or modify any provision of federal student aid law, that authorization from Congress did not extend to what the court majority viewed as rewriting of provisions of the statute and, as the majority opinion said, ripping out existing law root and branch. The court found that this was 
an expansive exercise of power that was not granted to the executive branch by Congress. Having found that in an exercise of statutory construction, the court went on to state what it described as an alternative holding, which applied the major questions doctrine that had been the subject of so much of the briefing as well as the questioning at oral argument. And applying the major questions doctrine, the majority found that the loan forgiveness program presented such a major question and Congress had not provided in the statute the requisite clear statement to authorize that sort of executive action. And thus, it fails the test adopted by the majority for the first time in West Virginia versus EPA last term, which is the major questions doctrine. The dissent for Justice Elena Kagan and two others disagreed on nearly every point and in the first instance took the court to task for straining standing doctrine to allow Missouri to bring a case on behalf of what the dissent described as an independent corporation under state law and further an independent corporation that had an opportunity to sue and declined to do so. Any injury, according to the dissent, that accrued to Mohila as a result did not affect the state of Missouri in any way. Missouri would not be out any money, nor would it have any further obligations. So Justice Kagan, on behalf of the three dissenters, would have found that there was no case or controversy. And on that basis, the case didn't belong in court and it should have been dismissed. She then proceeded to discuss the statute, and she found the statutory delegation was definitely broad, but it was clear, and that Congress had granted to the Secretary of Education broad authority to waive or modify any provision of federal student loan statute or regulation. Hence, while she conceded that may or may not have been a wise choice by Congress, it was indeed Congress's choice and that the statute was clear and the court should have deferred to the judgment of Congress and the elected branches. Then finally, the dissent addressed the major question doctrine, reiterated objections that Justice Kagan had to this in the West Virginia case, and mentioned that the court was substituting its judgment and its will for the judgment of the two elected branches. And the court obviously is the least democratically responsive branch of the federal government. She opined that that was potentially dangerous for democracy and that the court on the ground of separation of powers instead exercised an ungranted power to act as a super legislature and impose its view of what was appropriate legislative action. And again, she emphasized that the court was of the three branches the least suited in a democracy and by constitutional structure to make those sorts of judgments. Thanks, Paul. That's very helpful. And look, I think we could also devote a whole podcast on the standing question. There are some interesting comparisons or contrasts with some other recent decisions and how the court has deployed findings about whether there isn't or is Article 3 standing. But let's dig in a bit on the major questions doctrine. So just to put a bit more context on it, this was formally recognized by the Supreme Court as a doctrine in last year's West Virginia v. EPA case. 
case. The traditional rule has been when an agency administers its statute and Congress may not speak so clearly, the notion is that Congress has implicitly delegated authority to the agency to fill in the gaps. So when a statute is ambiguous, the courts have said under the longstanding Chevron case that it's for the agency to exercise its expertise in coming up with the best interpretation. And in that instance of ambiguity, the court will defer to the agency. So what the major questions doctrine does is it's sort of a Chevron off-ramp where the court says, look, if this is an interpretive issue that actually raises a major question, whatever that is, and we'll get to that, then no Chevron deference at a minimum. And actually some cases, including some of the cases involving COVID regulations when the court was asked to act very quickly on emergency applications for stays. The majority in those cases was applying an even stronger form of the doctrine, which basically said, look, if it's a major question, we don't just withhold deference. We actually just say then in that instance, there is no authority to act because we would need a clear statement. Either way, it's an important issue for agencies because many of their statutes that they administer every day in countless contexts do contain some ambiguity, and traditionally agencies have had the benefit of courts deferring to them. So this is a pretty significant departure from the general rule of deference. I worked at the FCC defending a lot of the FCC's actions for many years, and Chevron was the norm in those cases. The major questions doctrine is really important as it distills a set of cases where the agency will no longer get deference, and that's obviously important to the agencies. As Paul said, there was a lot of brief in this case that focused on the major questions doctrine, but it was interesting that the majority invoked the doctrine as an alternative ground. In other words, it first went through what it thought was the correct textual analysis, and then it added major questions as a backup argument. What do you make of that, Austin? Let me first say that I'm not generally an appellate lawyer, but I read that as an acknowledgement that the major questions doctrine wasn't particularly compelling in this case, even according to the majority. Mm -hmm. As I see it, there are two main elements. One, if it involves a whole lot of money or a big impact to society. And two, if the agency that's taking the action is acting, quote unquote, outside its domain. And here, they acknowledge that the Secretary of Education was acting within its domain. So pretty much among the top two variables, only the fact that it involved a lot of money was at stake. And I think they probably acknowledged among themselves that that wasn't enough to rely on principally. Paul, Peter, do you agree, disagree? What are your thoughts on that? Right. So I'll just give you my entirely speculative take. One wonders if an earlier draft of the opinion actually used the major questions doctrine as the primary or even exclusive mm. rationale, and that generated two things. Number one, a vigorous dissent from Justice Kagan, who characterized the doctrine as made up. But second, an interesting, somewhat cryptic concurring opinion from Justice Barrett that seemed to sort of espouse a softer version of what the major questions doctrine meant. Picking up a little bit on the thread, one could speculate that the emphasis of the major questions doctrine was 
necessary or helpful to get Justice Barrett with the majority. I think her concurrence is somewhat inscrutable as to what conclusions you should draw from her description of textualism, but I do think it's entirely possible that in order to keep together a six-vote majority, wanted to soft-pedal the major questions element. The majority's protest that this was just another basis that they could have stricken the action on. That sounds like the classic definition of dicta. It was a finding or determination that was not necessary to the disposition of the case. So it could be argued that the holding of this case is appropriately confined to the statutory construction exercise that the court engaged in. And in my view, Justice Kagan may have the better of the argument on the statutory construction, which is not to say that it was necessarily a wise policy decision by Congress or by the administration but to say that the stronger argument is that the statute did indeed authorize that action. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point about dicta, but if we assume that at a minimum it counts as something, you have the Chief Justice and five other justices signing on to it. Do you think that we have any clearer idea of what will count as a major question post-West Virginia v. EPA? Has this case really done anything to add any meat to the bones of the principles that will control whether something counts as a major question? In a word, no. (laughs) I think that this adds really very little, if anything, to the factors articulated and the rationale described in the West Virginia EPA case. It sort of assumes familiarity with the West Virginia case and the factors described there, but it doesn't say really anything about how the court will apply those factors or, I think more importantly, how should lower courts apply One could have an interesting discussion about how this multi-factor approach should apply in future cases. Do you have to meet more than one? Is one enough? But the ones that jumped out, that one was the economic impact a court pointed out that this was a program that would have a financial impact between $469 and $519 billion. Obviously, that's a large amount. Another thing I think you touched on, Austin, is to what extent was the agency trying to assert some new authority or powers that the agency hadn't previously asserted. And there's a hint that that was important to some degree in this case. But one factor I think Justice Barrett conceded was not present is that this was not a case where the secretary was operating outside his usual wheelhouse. So there have been some other cases where the court says, look, here we have an agency going back to an old case, the FDA, going back many decades, the FDA had no role really in tobacco regulation. And at that time, it was trying to do something new. So that is going to count as a factor that pushes us in favor of saying, yep, major questions doctrine applies here. And that was not a factor here because this was a statute that the secretary was given authority to apply. My takeaway is the same, that this doesn't really shed a lot of light into when this doctrine is going to be applied. The majority took a couple of the factors that have been aired in earlier cases and said, well, they're present here if you're a lower court. You don't get a lot more clarity from this. In terms of the bottom line and practical takeaways, Austin, maybe you can speak in particular to your consumer protection practice. Thanks. I read this opinion as very difficult to reconcile with my practice generally dealing with administrative agencies. The language at issue was that the Secretary of Education had the authority to waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision 
applicable to the student financial assistance programs under Title IV of the Education Act as the secretary deems necessary in connection with a national emergency. And what the court held was that waive or modify did not encompass forgiving balances in connection with what was indisputably a national emergency. If that language did not authorize the Secretary of Education to do what it did, then much of what regulatory agencies in my world do, it's almost impossible to believe was authorized by Congress under this opinion. I'll just give you one example of that, if I may. I do a lot of fair lending work. There's a law Mm -hmm. called the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, which prohibits discrimination in lending. And the act itself refers to applicants for credit. The CFPB and the Federal Reserve before that had interpreted the prohibition against discrimination to also include a prohibition against discouragement of applications for credit. And that has been the interpretation for as long as I've been practicing in this space and has been the basis for a number of settlements and lawsuits by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and other agencies. Recently, a district court held that the CFPB extended its authority beyond what Congress authorized Because when you discourage an application, you're not discouraging an applicant, someone who has actually applied, and therefore discouragement was not prohibited by the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. When I see this language, and I read the Supreme Court saying that it didn't authorize the Secretary of Education to do what it did, I see no way for the regulation issued by the CFPB that prohibited discouragement from continuing to exist. Because that is even farther from the statutory text than what we're talking about here. And I am concerned that this case reflects a lack of interest in or prioritization of consumer protection and a view that the government should not protect consumers or use government resources to do so. I think what we'll see is a cascading effect of judicial decisions that apply this case to say that agency interpretations like those by the CFPB, the FTC, and others are contrary to law. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And Paul, you obviously do a lot in the transportation space. What is this going to mean for DOT? The principles that Austin articulated or some of the effects are going to be similar for most of the federal administrative state. It shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody listening to this discussion that Congress often delegates broadly. Congress does not have the expertise or the time to fill in the specifics of the various policies that it articulates and delegates to the executive. And I think that this may be the court implicitly following its preference for a government that regulates less and less pervasively than has been the case increasingly probably since the Great Depression. Peter, I'll turn the tables on you here for a moment. Do you think that this major question doctrine is essentially the non-delegation doctrine in other clothes? And the court is essentially saying there are certain things that Congress and Congress alone is empowered to do under our Constitution. And if these sorts of things are to be done, they must be done by Congress. There is a strong overlap conceptually. I think arguably the difference is that in theory, 
if Congress wrote a statute that would meet the clear statement rule. This may be a broad delegation, but we really do mean it. That should pass muster under major questions doctrine. But opponents of the rule could say, well, that's still too broad a delegation to tolerate as a constitutional matter, a separation of powers matter, because Congress spoke too vaguely and the agencies shouldn't be basically mini legislatures creating their own rules. But I think the flavor is very similar. Justice Kagan's dissent raised an interesting rhetorical question. She said something to the effect of, are we really saying that maybe years from now or next year, there's going to be a finding that the HHS secretary doesn't have the authority to implement the Medicare program because it's just too big an economic impact and there's too broad a delegation. And that really does have a flavor of the non-delegation doctrine. And I think it will be up for debate really in terms of how the lower courts apply the major questions doctrine to see how that plays out. One final topic I hope we can get to briefly before we wrap, the Supreme Court granted cert in Loper Bright Enterprises, which takes on the key question of should the court keep Chevron, should it overrule Chevron, or should it do some sort of weakening of Chevron that's short of overruling? So my question to each of you, do you see how major questions doctrine and whatever happens to Chevron might coexist. For example, if Chevron survives, does that mean major questions doctrine is going to take on more salience? Conversely, if Chevron gets thrown out, does major questions doctrine become less important? Yes and yes. If Chevron is thrown out, I wonder what even the need for the major questions Mm -hmm. doctrine is anymore. But I actually wonder if a lot of this is confined to discrete areas like consumer protection, like environmental protection, specific areas where, for whatever reason, the court believes that regulators are ahead of their skis. I could see the Supreme Court ruling that the CFPB, in the case that they're hearing next term, is unconstitutionally funded and threatening the very existence of the agency going forward. But I have a hard time believing that even this court would throw out Chevron entirely. I just don't know how the government operates otherwise in this politically charged environment, how Congress could be expected to possibly, as Paul pointed out, given their limited resources and the partisan divide, how Congress could possibly be expected to fill the shoes of regulatory agencies. Right. Paul? I will depart a bit from Austin on the question of overruling Chevron. I don't think the court took this case to affirm Chevron. I think that if we're talking a year from now, chances are good that Chevron will either be entirely overruled or substantially curtailed and only apply in certain circumstances. And I think that then the question of challenges to agency action and so forth becomes really a much more open question and arguably open season for litigation challenges. And I think a lot of people's concerns about the major question doctrine is that it seems to be fairly standardless. And to invoke Potter Stewart in the pornography case, it seems to be sort of, I know it when I see it kind of thing. That invites the court substituting its judgment without standards and without articulable, firm, objectively applied rules to make determinations as to the wisdom and permissibility of actions taken by the democratically elected branches. 
on one hand, it provides opportunities to challenge regulations that many of our clients may feel are inappropriate or unnecessarily burdensome. At the same time, I think it could undermine the reliance interest and the settled expectations of companies that are regulated and that make products or provide services using federal regulations as the guardrails and the guides to appropriate conduct. We need not look any further than the mefepristone challenges pending in front of the Fifth Circuit, but that suggests that Perhaps courts may take recent Supreme Court activity and decisions as license to question the judgment and the policies of the legislature and as well as the executive branch. That could have some real negative consequences for business that relies on and conforms its conduct to regulations, including FDA regulations. The combination of major questions and the potential overruling or curbing of Chevron could have profound effect on what and how the federal government regulates and the federal regulatory state that has existed during most of our lifetimes. Thank you both. Glad we were able to have this discussion today. Thank you for listening to DLA Piper's Beyond the Curve podcast. All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLI Piper LLP US. The information contained in this podcast is not and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel and the relevant jurisdiction. This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising, requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. DLA Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast. Thank you.